0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. This week, AZPM has been bringing you stories about finding home. We continue next with a visit to World Refugee Day in Tucson, We'll hear a local artist tell about creating a representation of a beloved community. Plus, meet some kids who are putting our state's national parks in focus, and an essay about creating a blended family from Adiba Nelson. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On Saturday of last week, World Refugee Day was observed around the planet. It's an annual event to recognize the plight of refugees and celebrate their successes. Catalina High School hosted a multicultural party for all ages, including a ceremony that honored the youth who had become American citizens over the past year. Southern Arizona politicians and representatives from the Tucson police and fire departments also attended. The international array of musicians, dancers, artisans, and chefs represented Tucson as a global village. I first spoke with Emmanuel, a former broadcast engineer from Kenya who was there to share his music and his story He started by telling me how long he's been in the United States.
1: Three years, three months, and five days in the USA.
0: (laughs) You know exactly the number. When people ask you, where's your home, what do you say?
1: Currently, I don't know, but I know. Because the only document I have, I have a a green card, permanent Mm -hmm. resident. Mm -hmm. I find myself a Tucsonian, an Arizona, a USA.
0: How has Tucson been to you in this time?
1: Wonderful, beautiful, <laughs> best. Recently, I went to visit New York and I went to Tennessee. When I came back, I was ill, not sick, but ill. How because so? The weather. The weather on the other side, no, it didn't buy my, my my body. I'm okay now. I'm okay, Tucson is, is the
0: best. Is this weather like what you grew up with? Is this similar?
1: It's not, but similar to the refugee camp where I used to live. So I grew up kind of in Kenya, in a place that was semi-desert, like here. So that's where I started my life. The 20 years I mentioned, I was registered in that environment. I could go and come back, but that was my station. That's maybe why I got used to this heat and climate.
0: What did you do for a living when you were in Africa, and what do you do for a living now?
1: My, my father, before he died, he told me, please, please, my son, wherever you go, go to school. When I reached in Kenya, I decided I fought to go to school. Then I became an engineer in telecommunication.
0: Have you been able to find engineering work in the United States? Are people willing to hire you?
1: Not yet. The first job I got, I was a, a substitute teacher. I used to teach math. And then after six months, I was hired as an interpreter. Because I speak seven different languages. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, now I'm a case manager at the IRC.
0: So we're going to go around the circle. Can you tell me who you are and what your age is?
2: My name is Fatima. I'm 18. My name is Farida. I'm about to be 16. My name is Marad, and I'm 11.
0: Are you related?
2: Yes, siblings. So
0: how long have you been in the U.S.?
2: About 14 years almost. And
0: yeah. where'd you come from?
2: We are Turkish, but we were all born in Russia, except for him. He was born in the States. (laughs)
0: Lucky one. (laughs) Can you share with me the reason why your family made the transition and came to the U.S.?
2: So my mom and dad, they were facing discrimination, especially because my mom's skin color back in Russia, and also because of our culture, because we're a specific kind of Turkish. We were discriminated from jobs, people, friend groups, everything in Russia, so they wanted to come here as well as religious discrimination, because we are Muslim. And so that in Russia was also found upon, especially with our culture. Basically, all the odds were against us.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When you meet new people, do you feel like you have to explain what being from Turkey is like or what being Turkish is?
3: I mean, well, I wasn't really there, so I don't know much. No, I don't need to tell them, because I mean, on the inside, we're all the same. We're not really different. Wow. And we should all have the same rights, and no one should be like... You know, we should have the same rights and stuff. Yeah.
0: So, do you have plans for what you might want to do? You're 18, so you're on the verge of having to start uh, getting I a do. job and all that. What are well, you
2: going to do? Well, I already started college a week ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm already, you know, I started a program at the University of Arizona, doing something new, getting ahead so I can graduate earlier, start med school.
0: Have you guys had any thoughts about this? Have you decided what you want to do?
2: Well, I just finished, like, a government program this summer where I was learning about our government and how our city works because I'm interested in politics and law, but I'm also interested in business. So I'm just hoping to graduate at 16, enter college, and find out what I'm passionate about.
0: So when you think about home, what do you think about?
2: When people say home, this is my home. I was born—I mean, I wasn't born here, but I was raised here all
3: Absolutely. Long.
2: I think we had to learn that, too, because people tried to tell me what my home is, where it's like Turkey's your home, no Russia's your home, no America's your home. And I had to realize home is actually where my family is because we got pushed to Russia. We're now in America and that's what defines home. It's not your circumstances, it's what the people you're around.
0: And and young man, have you ever thought about wanting to go to Turkey or Russia?
3: Yes, I'm actually thinking about it and my parents said that I might be going soon with them so I'm very excited to see what they've gone through and my parents too. Tell me who you are, identify yourself. My name is Jonathan Martinez, and I founded the Pawn Initiative. It's a company where I'm trying to reach out to um, other places in Tucson to bring chess. Anybody can play chess, no matter what race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, language, it doesn't matter. And that's why I thought chess is perfect to bring to refugees, people who can't speak English, who just got to the united states and it's a bonding technique where we can bond friendships and sure can you tell me how old you are i'm 15
0: 15 years old and you decided to do this that's pretty amazing i'm sure people tell you that all the time but have you had some players come to you today from other parts of the world
3: yeah i played against this kid i don't know where he was from but um he didn't speak a bit of english and we still had a really good game
0: So, introduce yourself for us, please.
3: Uh,
4: My name is Meheria Habibi. I'm um, a former refugee from Afghanistan, and I came to Tucson about 18 years ago.
0: What was your refugee experience like? Uh, Do you have a reason you can share with us why your family chose to leave Afghanistan?
4: So, during the Taliban regime, um, we couldn't stay there anymore because my mom was a single mom, and she couldn't support us, so we had to leave, and of course, because of the war as well. Um, So we left um, when I was only 12 years old and we went to Pakistan and lived there for five years before we came here.
0: How big was your family?
4: Uh, It was my mom, my sister and me.
0: And now what do you do for a living?
4: I work for the International Rescue Committee, which is a refugee resettlement agency um, and one of the affiliate offices here in Tucson.
0: What's your main mission uh, personally? Not the mission of IRC, but why do you do this?
4: I love to give back to the community that helped me. Um, so I really feel connected with um, the refugees that I work with. Um, I feel that um, when I came here and when my family came here, the community helped us to um, you know, have a better life here. Um, so I definitely want to give back to that community. And whenever I go home, I feel good about what I do um, and I can sleep at night because I know that I have made a difference in somebody's life.
0: Do you remember a time, though, when you were a little girl when this didn't seem like home?
4: Uh, Yes, when I first uh, came here, actually, I went to high school here in Catalina, where we're at right now. (laughs) (laughs) And when I first came here, I went through a culture shock. It was really difficult for me to adjust. Um, I mean, you can imagine being uh, only 12 years old, leaving your country with nothing.
0: So you've met many young women, I would assume, who might remind you of yourself.
4: Yes, for sure. Whenever I see um, like the refugees that I work with, especially the ones that are really struggling and they think that it's really hard for them to adjust to life here, I share my story with them and I let them know that it's very hard, I understand, uh, but trust me, after a few months, after a year, maybe after two years, you will see that everything will be um, different and you will feel good. Just work really hard and give back and get really involved.
0: Those were some of the attendees at the Tucson Celebration of World Refugee Day, held Saturday, June 22nd at Catalina High School. 2018 marked 50 years since the passage of the Fair Housing Act. To celebrate that anniversary, the Southwest Fair Housing Council brought together academics, activists, artists and others to talk about the housing challenges that still face this community. Here is Nick O'Gara with more. I went to that conversation last year.
5: The discussion focused on historical patterns of housing discrimination and access and examined how those issues are still playing out today. There, I met Tucson artist, Alex Jimenez, who created a piece of art that approaches the concept of the beloved community.
6: Yeah, so it's been 50 years since the, housing of the fair, passing of the Fair Housing Act. And so in a sort of retrospective look at um, the fights that still have to go on uh, for fair housing, and um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, there has been a little enforcement in fair housing. And so... We
5: are just outside the Dunbar Auditorium. People are milling about, stopping by to take a photo with Jimenez and the art that she created for the event. The painting is on three connected doors, so they stand tall, taller than a person, there's text at the top of the panels, and the bulk of the space is occupied by a sort of flowing landscape with the silhouettes of people above it, and that landscape is populated with vignettes, connected, calling out to issues of housing access and community health.
6: Uh, this sort of form is talking about segregation that still exists today, that has never really um, been broken up, and the different reasons why, and then talking about um, different communities uh, in Arizona and the Southwest Fair Housing Council deals a lot with um, um, helping people gain access to places um, and dealing uh, with the enforcement end too.
5: The council commissioned her art.
6: Yeah, they wanted to have a piece that was both uh, illustrative of a story and that um, also uh, advertise sort of their values. And so uh, the top half is real bold and, um, you know, has a quote from Martin Luther King, Um, to create a beloved community, we have to have qualitative change to our souls and quantitative change to our lives. It's uh, really a quote that they felt very strongly about. um, And so it was the main theme of the whole piece.
5: The piece Jimenez created is a triptych about the idea of a beloved community. That concept is referenced in the text at the top of the center door. On the right door, scenes show current barriers to that beloved community and fair housing. On the left door, historical barriers are represented, including redlining. ¶¶ Jay Young of the Southwest Fair Housing Council says the term redlining comes from a practice started in the 30s. The federal government created maps ostensibly indicating levels of lending risk in different areas of cities. Those maps had risk indicators that drew literal red lines around African-American and minority neighborhoods. The practice shaped segregation in American cities. This is one of the elements Jimenez depicts in her piece.
6: There were gated communities, um, there was segregation, which you can kind of all see, and then redlining areas are close to uh, waste and factories and and industrial sites. And then in present day, you often find schools next to coal plants and um, coal power facilities, and fast food and Circle K and and, um, prisons. And um, on the present day blocks, you have banks that often block access to um, affordable housing and then you often have realtors who steer you away from wanting to um, be in a certain community by showing you where you should belong, uh, which is often a more segregated area. Um, And then it's now uh, personal lawsuits that often grant you access to housing that you wouldn't normally have. Um, So yeah, the piece is all about that and in the beloved community we see jobs and produce, and cafes, and homes, and gardens, and lots of green, and it's just a, a dream.
5: Community organizers, neighbors, academics, and artists like Jimenez hope to shed light on discriminatory practices, past and present, and make the beloved community a reality. For Arizona Spotlight,
0: I'm Nico O'Gare. The art that Alex Jimenez created is on display at the Southwest Fair Housing Council's office in downtown Tucson. Among the dreams that Stuart Udall had for the deserts of Arizona were to make them accessible to all and to help others realize the beauty they contain. Parks in Focus, a program that Udall started, is going strong today with the mission of helping youth who live in the city take what is often their first venture into the great outdoors. The program recruits kids from the Boys and Girls Clubs in Tucson, and they're provided with cameras and the training to document what they find. I met novice photojournalists, 10-year-old Yoheved and 15-year-old Adolfo, plus Parks and Focus Manager Brett Muter to find out more.
3: Well, I describe it as a great opportunity I get from going to the Boys and Girls Club and keeping me busy throughout, like, weekends and breaks instead of, like, going out and, like, Doing other things that I shouldn't be doing or like staying at home. <laughs> That's
0: very honest of you.
3: Instead of staying at home too, being lazy.
0: Well, when you go out in the field with Parks and Focus, what kind of places do you go to?
3: Well, we've gone many places. We've gone to Grand Canyon, Sedona and Flagstaff, the Chiricahuas, and like places here too, like in Tucson.
0: Do you think that you would get out and see this much of Arizona any other way?
3: Not really. I don't get other opportunities like this around, like, in school. You haven't? What about you? No, not really, because me and my family hardly even go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So we usually are, like, a stay-at-home family.
0: Have you camped overnight with the Parks and Focus group? Yes. Was camping a surprising experience for you in any way? Yes. How so?
3: Um, When it's very quiet at night, we could hear... Bugs chirping, and we could hear like owls.
0: What about for you, Adolfo? What is something that is memorable or special about camping out under the stars?
3: Mine, it would probably be like hearing the kids laughing, making jokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brett, tell us a little bit about how the program works and how do you end up uh, helping these kids make the transition from maybe a real urban lifestyle to sampling some of the great Arizona outdoors?
7: Parks and Focus has been partnering with the Boys and Girls Club for uh, 20 years now. And the mission of the program is pretty simple. It's connecting youth to the outdoors, to our public lands, through photography. We visit each of the six clubhouses here in Tucson doing activities at the club, exploring what green space there might be around those clubhouses, uh, setting expectations for what they're going to see and do over the course of the program. Um, Those club visits kind of progress into day trips to places like Saguaro National Park, to Tumakakure National Historic Site, to the Botanical Gardens, to the Desert Museum. Those day trips progress into one night overnight experiences to the Chiricahuas or to Mount Lemmon. And then the most involved participants from the school year activities get invited to go on the bigger trips to Sedona and Flagstaff and the Grand Canyon. Mm
0: -hmm. What role do cameras
7: play in what you're doing? Photography is a linchpin of of what we're doing. Uh, Cameras slow the participants down. It encourages them to stop and look at things they wouldn't typically take the time to stop and look at. It's really a safety net for a lot of our participants who are going out there and experiencing the outdoors for the first time.
0: Can you tell us about a situation where you were able to document something with the camera that you thought was really special? You can go first, Adolfo.
3: Beautiful landscape and like sunset pictures that we were able to take. And like normally, I wouldn't like remember a specific sunset, but these I were able to take pictures and trace them back to like a website. I was able to see them again.
0: And when you got back, were you anxious to share those pictures with your family and friends?
3: Yes, I had like beautiful pictures. Yeah, great. Fantastic, and you'll have
0: it. what about you? Did you like to take pictures before you tried this program?
3: Yes, I always took pictures with my mom's phone. Me and my brothers usually go outside or go on our roof and take pictures of sunsets and the mountains.
0: Brett Muter, how do you think that the originators of this program would
7: feel about where it's gone today? This program was set up to honor uh, really the legacy of Stuart Udall, who was a champion for the environment and for our public lands. Reaching the 20-year mark of this program is really special, and this 20-year partnership with the Boys and Girls Club is incredibly special. And the program has evolved quite a bit o- over the past two decades. So I-, I would hope that we're making Stuart Udall proud.
0: My guests were Yoheved, age 10, and Adolfo, age 15, with Brett Muter, a program manager for the Stuart L. Udall Parks and Focus program. You can see the kids' photographs on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. In this essay, she talks about finding the perfect recipe for a family. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor and her opinions do not reflect those of Arizona Public Media.
8: This is The Word and I'm Adiba Nelson. Blending families is not nearly as much fun as blending margaritas. Remember being a kid and imagining the kind of person you were going to marry? I do. At six years old, I proclaimed proudly that I was going to marry a man named Ken, or maybe it was Kevin. We were going to have two kids, Bobby and Rebecca, a big house with a white picket fence and a golden retriever. Oh, and we'd be 21 when we got married and have our first kid by 22 and last by 24. Thank God for those imaginary children that this dream did not come true. Those kids would be wards of the state in no time. Fast forward 32 years, and yes, I did finally marry the man of my dreams. It was just a very different dream. This dream culminated in a man 12.5 years my senior, atheist, his two grown sons, and my one six-year-old daughter. It also came with a full bar because blended family. Let me tell you folks, blending families is not for the faint of heart. We are two people who are more than a decade apart in age, one raised middle class and one raised dirt poor. One lived in one house up until they left for college and the other has to use fingers and toes and both of someone else's hands to count all the places they've lived. One was raised in an Afro-Latin family with loud music, heated arguments, and grudges, and the other raised in a Jewish family with loud talking, heated arguments, and hugs two seconds later. Let me add to this that I was raised as an only child by an incredibly strict single mom, and he was the baby of the family, with two parents that were pretty laid back and are still married to this day. When I tell you that we couldn't be more different if we tried, I'm not kidding. So, how do you go from two insanely different individuals living life separately to two insanely different individuals merging their separate lives into one family portrait all while avoiding a cosmic meltdown? Well, very, very carefully. And with a bottle of wine. Or maybe 50 bottles of wine. You can imagine that the difference in our upbringing greatly affected our views on parenting, and this difference greatly affected our ability to peacefully cohabitate when we first moved in together. I grew up fast and independent, typical latchkey kid, could cook, do my own laundry, and take buses across town by myself by the time I was 13. I expected the same level of independence and autonomy in his two boys. My husband, on the other hand, was their chauffeur, chef, and laundromat. This was not working for me at all. I was not about to be anyone's maid and I surely did not expect him to be a butler. He and his two sons, having lived like bachelors before I came along, they were used to bachelor living walking around in their underwear, peeing with the doors open, openly joking about things that teen boys joke about with their dad when a woman isn't around. Except now, a woman was around. All the time. Our first night of living in the same house, I saw my 17-year-old stepson naked. Naked as the day is long. He stepped out of the bathroom right as I was coming into the hallway to talk to my husband. That, my friends, is something I can never unsee. I have been snarked back to for making people put their dishes in the sink, told I hate you, and told we didn't choose you, he did. However, I've also had my daughter fall hopelessly in love with her new big brothers been comforted by their concern when my mother was hospitalized for a month over the holidays and was moved to tears when just after their father and I officially became husband and wife, the older of the two hugged me and said, I have two mothers now. This blending stuff is not for the fan of heart, folks. I have slammed doors so hard pictures fall off the wall and shatter. I have drunk entire bottles of wine by myself because stepkids. I have also learned to look with empathy at the teenage heart and mind. I've learned to stand my ground when I need to, but also know that not everything is a battle. I've learned what it's like to have a child that doesn't look different but is different be held to unfair standards because his disability was not taken into account. I've learned that not trying to understand mental illness is just as bad as not trying to understand a physical disability, if not worse. Every day is work. Every day is a test. Sometimes I fail a little and sometimes I fail so hard I wonder if my husband made a mistake in marrying me. But every day I show up and I try to get it right. So this is my dream life. It is a far cry from my fantasy when I was six, but life has that way about it. You ask for chocolate ice cream and it gives you vanilla with sprinkles and pistachios and caramel sauce. It's not at all what you asked for, but as it turns out, you love it. You crave it. You need it and You wonder how in all the years beforehand, you never knew it could be this good. The end.
0: You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The beats were by Benby. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The rest of the stories in our series, Finding Home, are available on our website, azpm.org. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.